Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hello, welcome everyone. Welcome to my regular listeners, as well as some new listeners that have joined us today. Today's a great day to listen in. I have a great guest for you today. We're going to be talking about clergy abuse today. You've seen this in the news recently with all these preachers being arrested or charged with sexual misconduct or rape or pedophilia. I'm sure you've seen the news. Well, today we're going to hear a story about a woman who's been victimized in that way, and she's fighting back. So let me read her bio for you. A church is where an insecure 16-year-old girl should feel welcome, happy, and most importantly, safe. Tragically for some, the church can become a place of great harm. Sandy Phillips Kirkham details her account of how charismatic youth minister preyed upon her, a betrayal which left her broken with a shattered faith and the ultimate shame of being blamed and forced from the church she loved. Despite a successful and happy life as a wife, mother, and friend, Sandy successfully concealed her abuse for 27 years until a trigger forced her to face the truth. Sandy's story will take you on her journey of healing. Her strength and courage will inspire you. Let me pray upon you. Her book details Sandy's journey from innocent 16-year-old, a victim, to a survivor and advocate. Will you please welcome Sandy Phillips Kirkham. Welcome, Sandy, to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I've been listening to you on the Preacher Boys podcast and thought you had a really great story. And so I wanted to come and bring you on so my listeners can hear your story as well. Mm -hmm. So tell us a, a little bit about your, your home and your church environment growing up. Let's start from the beginning here. Okay. Um, I'm the oldest of five. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was about seven, which that was really the impact of my life of just how it altered everything about that time in my life. Then my mother remarried and we moved in with my stepfather shortly after my father remarried. And so I was dealing with these blended families and it was just very confusing for me at the time. My parents and stepfather did not attend church. Hmm. So I, I wasn't a part of a church until I was about eight. And that's when my best friend who lived up the street invited me to go with their family. And I went with them and I went every Sunday after that. I absolutely fell in love with church. Um, it was a place that I felt safe. I think it provided for me a, a place away from home that I felt comfortable and I got attention there. Um, I was very active even as a small child. I went to vacation Bible school, church camp, loved Sunday school. I sang in a junior choir. Really, it was a, just a great place for me to be. Um, when I was 13, I was baptized and then my faith really deepened and my involvement in the church became even more so. Um, started teaching Sunday school and teaching vacation Bible school. I started serving on committees with adults and doing more of the activities that would, you know, just be more in depth than just typical youth group activities. So, you know, it's just no exaggeration to say that if the doors of the church were open, I was there. And I loved it. I loved serving God. I felt that that was the place for me and everything about it was brought me joy and peace in the church. Wow. You really um, were very sincere in your faith. It was not a fake one. I, I hear a lot of stories of, you know, being brought up in the church and being made to go to church right. and you just go through the motions kind of thing, but it's, it sounds like it was the opposite for you. It was. That you yes. really believed this with all your heart uh, was that a fundamental Baptist church you were going to? Or what uh, it was a Church of Christ Christian Church, which is similar to the Baptist. It's an independent church. Um, 
So something happened while you were serving the Lord and loving God. You mm-hmm. met your abuser. Yes. Shortly after I turned 16, uh, our church hired a new youth pastor. And from the moment he arrived, he was totally different than anyone we'd ever seen before. He was very charismatic, very dynamic. His sermons were really like nothing we'd ever heard before. And people were just drawn to him. He had a personality that people found themselves wanting to be around him. They wanted to please him. So he was very good at asking people to do things and they didn't hesitate. Um, It it was just a different kind of atmosphere when he came to the church. Uh, The youth group exploded in numbers. We went from like 25 to almost 200 in a very short time. Uh, Even the adult church was growing because people just came to hear him preach because he was so good at what he did. He was 30, uh, married with two children, but he really acted more like our age group. He dressed like we did. He was went to our football games at school. He knew our music. So he just, he really, he was tuned into us. And in return, we found ourselves, all of us being willing to please him and want to do anything we could to make the youth group and the church better. So when people think of a profile of a child abuser, they usually think, oh, some dirty old man, you know, that his roaming Mm -hmm. fingers or what have you. But this youth pastor sounded like, okay, he was really good looking and hip and, and really loved the young people. Mm -hmm. Is is that typical of well, it's, it's typical in the sense that it's not the, the dirty old man hiding in the bushes. Um, most abusers are people we know. They're people that we like. They're usually people that uh, connect with people very well. And that's what makes them so dangerous because they're not obvious with what they do. And they're very good at that. Um, they pretend to be one of us. They pretend to care. But in reality, their goal is to find a way to take advantage of the most vulnerable in in the group. And so predators are usually drawn to places where they will find vulnerable people. You know, the gymnastics Mm -hmm. team is an example of that. The Boy Scouts, uh, anywhere where you can. And certainly the church, because we are welcoming into people who are in need. Oftentimes, then there are many people in the church who are vulnerable to these types of men and sometimes women. Were there any red flags that you should have seen or noticed when you were around this youth pastor? Well, he came with so many different ideas and and different ways of doing things. And one of the things that he was doing now, this was in the 70s. So cultures were changing and, you know, free love and kind of thing. But he came into our church and he expected everyone to hug each other. So we were always hugging each other. And he also expected us to say how much we loved each other and that we love you. And not just that I love you in Christ. He would simply walk up, give you a hug and say, I love you. Now, you know, that may seem innocent, but that's a little odd for that pastor to be saying those kinds of things. And it also blurs the lines because, you know, when you say to someone, I love you, you know, that can be confusing to young teenagers and even to vulnerable adults. So, but he did that with everybody. It wasn't like he picked someone else special, but so the hugging and the the contact was kind of a red flag in the beginning. But for me personally, um, I babysat for his family. His wife worked evenings. Mm -hmm. So one night after he came home, he asked me to go to his basement and listen to a song by Neil Diamond. Well, I felt a little weird because I'd never been around a pastor that wanted to talk to me about anything but church and the Bible, but I went to the basement, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, a Neil Diamond song. So I, I went to Neil the basement. Diamond. I know, but that's a trigger factor for me sometimes. Um, so anyway, I went to the basement and he put this record on and I sat down on the couch and instead of sitting in a chair or another place, he came on the couch and sat very close to me. Mm. And I remember feeling uncomfortable, but I didn't say anything because I thought, well, he's just sitting next to me. It's no big deal. But that's a red flag that I felt because it felt uncomfortable to me. And then the other times that I would babysit for him, his wife wouldn't come home till late in the evening. So he would come home around seven or eight. And after the kids were in bed, instead of taking me home, he wanted me to sit and talk with him all evening. So we'd talk about the Bible or we'd talk about church. And sometimes he'd ask me what I thought of his sermon, which at age 16, I'm flattered that this man has any idea that I would have some opinion about this great sermon that he just gave. 
So I didn't see anything wrong with that because he's my pastor. But had that occurred with my 30 year old neighbor down the street, every time I went to babysit, I know I would have come home to my mother and said, okay, this is weird. Every mm -hmm. time I babysit, this man wants to sit and talk to me all evening. I mean, what interest would I have as a teenager wanting to talk to this 30 year old married man? But because my pastor was who he was and he tapped into our common connection of the church and God. And, and again, many times he would give me books to read because he wanted me to get better in my deep in my spirituality. So I, I didn't see anything wrong with it because of who he was. And so I just accepted that behavior, which is another tool and technique. They, they, they look for ways to, to get into you mm -hmm. that don't seem obvious, you know, and that was, so those were two red flags for me. Now, as far as the congregation goes, you know, I was in his office a lot by myself, but so were other kids because he would, he would, he would actually call us into his office and say, I want you to come in and tell me what's going on in your life. Talk to me about your problems. Instead of us going to him, he would encourage us to come into his office. So while that probably wasn't a good thing, no one saw it as a bad thing. Um, it seemed normal. But he called me into his office a lot more than the other kids. And later on, there were people who did say to me, you know, there were times when I wondered why he said something to you like that. Or I noticed something one time. And so I think people notice some things, but mm -hmm. no one thought enough of it to say, okay, there's something going on here that doesn't seem right. So those were the red flags that I think in the beginning were very subtle, um, but they were hard to see. And this is really important to distinguish these things because I was groomed by a guidance counselor in seventh grade, mm -hmm. but he was one of those dirty old men that, you know, he was doing creepy stuff. Yeah. Um, but I never would have seen myself a pastor and he's talking about spiritual things and he's talking right. about God and mm -hmm. he's not talking about sex. He's not right. watching, you're not watching dirty movies together. No. He's not, you know, buying you sexy lingerie. It's, Hey, he's doing spiritual things. Mm -hmm. It's a setup. It's, it's that yeah. grooming process you're talking about. It's, it's, it's pulling someone in to gain their trust um, in a very di diabolical way because he's using the church to do that. That's yeah. really scary. That scares, mm -hmm. scares me to death. What were the first times that he did something really inappropriate that you're just like, whoa? Well, the very first time uh, was after a youth group meeting that was held in my home. Um, I was the song leader. He put me in a leadership position and it was very important to him that the evening always go well and that we were to make people feel welcome. And so at the end of the evening, I was nervous because I wanted to make sure that he thought everything went well. And he came up to me in my hallway and began telling me how great the evening was and how proud he was of me. And I was on cloud nine. I was flattered that he felt that way. I felt good that the evening went so well. And then he just slowly bent down and he kissed me. And it wasn't, it, it was a kiss, but it seemed somewhat innocent to some extent. And I, I remember thinking, I think he just kissed me. But then my next thought was, well, he's my pastor and I don't think he would be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And it was just a quick kiss and he's always hugging people. And so maybe this is just his way of showing his appreciation for the evening. I, it was really the only way in my 16-year-old mind that I could justify it because I couldn't I couldn't think about this man doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And this was a person that everyone loved and thought so highly of. So how could I think he was doing something he shouldn't be doing? So I just I just let it go. I didn't think anything more about it. Um, I mean, did you have any sex ed or anything? Did you know the birds and bees? Uh, at, well, yeah, at 16 I did. Yeah, I did. Um, but I, I wasn't, I hadn't dated much. I wasn't allowed to date till I was 16. So I hadn't had any dating experience. I had one kiss before this with a boy at camp. Um, so I wasn't worldly or knowledgeable about all those things. But, and again, it was such a quick, innocent type kiss. It didn't grab me. It didn't push me against the wall. I, mm. I just, and again, I think for me, it was okay. If, he's, if this is more than just a kiss, 
then what do I do with it? So therefore, I'm just going to say it's nothing because I don't know what else to do. Um, I let it go. I let it go. But as I babysat for him, you know, sometimes when I would leave, he would kiss me and sometimes he wouldn't. So, you know, I didn't see it as a kind of a continual thing that he was always wanting to kiss me. Um, He always hugged me. Um, but the, the kissing became more intense as it went along. So it, it would be another year um, before he would have sex with me. And so that grooming process and, and, and kind of pushing the boundaries each time he was with me um, finally ended with him having sex with me. Oh, wow. Now, some of us listening are like an adult having sex with a, a child or 16-year-old. Can you unpack that a little bit more, the process of how he got to that point? I mean, the, the, the first time you had intercourse, I mean, did he, you know, go to a hotel with you and you had a candlelight dinner or was Hardly. it in the backseat of the car? Was it an um, accident? I mean, it wasn't an accident. He was very deliberate and I had every intentions of having sex with me that night. I babysat. I was babysitting. I put the kids to bed. I walked down the steps. I assumed that we would go into the living room or the family room, um, sit on the couch and talk about the things we always talked about. But instead, he stopped me at the bottom of the stairs and he took me into the living room um, and immediately put me on the floor and began undressing me. Um, And I I froze. I, I literally froze. And I kept thinking to myself, he's going to stop. He's going to stop. And that the entire time he's whispering into my ear how much he loves me, that he would never hurt me, and that he can, I can trust him. And then he kept asking me, do you love me? Do you love me? And I, of course, I'm answering yes, because, well, yes, I do, because that's what I've told him for the past year. I, I, I just, I was so confused. And what my real reaction was, I froze. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he sort of pushed my head under the stereo. And so when he's starting to get farther than I thought he would ever go, I blo- I just blocked it out and I started reading the serial numbers underneath the stereo. Oh my ju- goodness. Just to be thinking of anything else. Um, at one point, he then just picked me up and took me upstairs. He literally put me on the bed, penetrated me, and that was it. And I was horrified. I was absolutely horrified. I... I wanted to cry. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. Um, he left the room, told me to get dressed, and he would take me home. And I remember sitting on the bed, and I put the bedspread around me because I was so embarrassed that I didn't have my clothes uh-huh. on. Oh, wow. um, and then I just remember thinking, I just had sex. I'm no longer a virgin. I just had sex with this man. And he took me home. Now in the book, of course, I go into a little bit more detail, but he he took me home and just before I got out of the car, he said to me, now, you know, this is something between the two of us. You can't tell anyone. And of course I'm thinking, who would I tell? I I don't want anybody to know I just did this. Mm. So um, that was the first time. And then I think I, I, at that point, I kept thinking, you know, I've had sex with him. So now I'm committed to him. Again, I'm I'm at this point, I'm 17 years old. I'm still... Like, what do I do with this? I don't, I don't right. know what to do with this. Um, and he was convincing me that he loved me. He was convincing me that he needed me in his ministry and that God, this was God's will in our lives. He threw that at me. Uh, eventually he would say to me that we were married in God's eyes. I mean, twisting the scripture and using God as a reason that we should be together. And so I accepted that. I, I started to accept that. Um, there were a couple times I went to him and told him that I couldn't do this anymore. I felt guilty. Um, he would respond in one of two ways. Uh, one, he would say to me how much he needed me, how much he loved me, and that he couldn't live without me. So that was the guilt part of it. Or he would respond and by saying to me, you know, you're no longer a virgin. No one else is going to want you. I'm the only one that knows how to love you. And you are committed to me. And this is going to be the way it is. And I saw no way out. I, I, I didn't see a way out. Um, and so the relationship continued for five years. Wow, five years. It went on for five years. That is a long time. And it, during that, that time, he became more aggressive physically. Uh, he hit me. He became 
sexually more deviant. It, it just progressed. It got worse and worse. And to a point that I finally, I was, my self-esteem was so low. Um, I hated myself for what I'd been mm. doing. So I finally just accepted that this was my life. I, I knew I'd never get married. I knew I'd never have children. And this wouldn't be over until he said it was over. This went on for five years and nobody in the church noticed it. Your parents didn't notice it. Not, you know, I, I, people say, well, where were your parents? Well, first of all, my parents were thrilled. I was in church. I mean, this was a time in the 70s when drugs were prevalent. Mm -hmm. Girls were, you know, having free sex. So for them, what safer place could there be than to be in church? So, um, and they saw his, in, his intention toward me and his involvement with me as a good thing. I mean, he would take me on hospital visits with him. I mean, they saw this as being positive. Um, and they knew how much I loved being there and that it was a place that I liked to go. So I, they, didn't, they didn't see it. And many in the church didn't see it. Began because who suspects the pastor of such behavior? Mm -hmm, yeah. And in, especially in the 70s, when this wasn't an open topic like it is now, um, you wouldn't have dared thought anything like that. And so it's not uncommon for people in the church uh, to miss the signs and to ignore what they really do see because they just can't believe that it would be something that would be happening in their church. Because then they'd have to do something about it. Yes, exactly. When did it all come crumbling down? It, it does crumble eventually. It does. Um, two elders became suspicious and followed him one night and found us together in a hotel room. And then from then on, uh, the next month and a half was an absolute nightmare for me. Mm. Um, it was initially hoped that they could keep what he had done um, quiet and keep it from the congregation. Now, I have to say one thing before I forget. <laughs> this wasn't his first incident of sexual misconduct. Oh, Prior, in, just after he, was arri he arrived at our church, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of sexual misconduct. When he was confronted by my elders, he didn't deny it. He said it was true. He asked for forgiveness, said it would never happen again. It was a mistake. So within six months, that's when he was kissing me in my hallway. So this, so these elders were aware that this was the second time that there had been an incident with this man of sexual abuse and misconduct. But in spite of that, they tried to keep it quiet in hopes of moving him to another church. And so I was told during that time where I was to sit, how I was to respond to questions. I wasn't to talk to anyone. I wasn't to tell anyone about what had happened, including my parents. And this was all in an effort to keep it quiet. Well, that effort failed, and so it was determined that he should address the congregation. He did it in a very vague way, just simply said that he'd sinned, he'd sinned against God, and he'd sinned against his wife, and that was his confession. That's it. Two days later, he had me meet him in a hotel room after that confession in front of the congregation. Now, he was moved to the next church. He was given a going-away party. Um, there was actually a vote to maybe keep him, but the vote failed and they decided to move him to the next church. About uh, two weeks, three weeks later, I was called in by the elders. And this is probably the hardest part of my story for me. Mm -hmm. I was called in by the elders and I was told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. I was devastated. I loved that church. It was the only church I knew. And here I was being told by these two elders that I wasn't fit to worship there any longer. Mm -hmm. He could be forgiven and given a second, third chance. I couldn't be. I was told that to leave the church. I wasn't given any counseling. I wasn't helped in any way. I was simply told to leave. And I did. I left. And that I told people many times, as horrific as the abuse was, Having been told to leave that church had a greater impact on me spiritually than the actual abuse did. Um, I, I don't think I ever recovered from that. Um, it still haunts me to this day to some extent. Um, that response of the church really devastated me. So that was 
the crumbling, as you called it, um, it came crashing down and I, I left the church. So did that, did that change your perception of God? I mean, what was your relationship with God this time? Well, I felt a disconnect from God. I, I never blamed God. I never felt like God caused this to happen. I, I, in fact, I carried the, the blame and the shame. I felt guilty for what I had done. And so I never blamed God, but because of the relationship being tied in with God and the prayers that this man would give, and then, you know, he'd give these wonderful sermons about marriage and sanctity of marriage on a Sunday morning after having sex with me the night before. Yeah. I, I, I had difficulty separating all of that. And there were so many trigger factors associated with the church and, and prayer that God really did. It was hard for me to have any kind of a relationship with God. I did. I didn't become an atheist like a lot of victims do and who become angry at God. I simply just, I, I just put him on the back burner. I knew he existed, but I didn't have a connection with him any longer. Um, so for 27 years, I, I never prayed. I never opened my Bible. Um, I went to church because when I met my husband, um, he was a Methodist and I thought, well, I'll go to the Methodist church. It's a different denomination. Mm -hmm. I'll just go on. It should be fine. It didn't work that way. I, I had anxiety attacks in church. I, I, his reminders of him were constant, but I forced myself to go. I, I made sure that I went because I knew when we had children, I wanted them to have that church experience. Um, but Every time I walked past the minister's office, I got a knot in my stomach. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Had nothing to do with that minister. But you understand that. I mean, yes. it, 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 but I did that for 27 years. It became my norm. I just knew that when I walked past that office, I was going to get a knot in my stomach. Um, certain hymns, um, I can tell you what his favorite hymn was. And every time that was played, that's who I thought of. Um, oh. I couldn't pray. It was so I did have a, a deep, deep disconnect for 27 years. And I have to tell you, I, I missed it. I, I, I actually mourned that loss in my spiritual life, but I didn't know how to get it back because I'm keeping this secret. I'm still carrying guilt and shame. I couldn't forgive myself. I didn't feel worthy to be in church. So with all of that mixed in, I just put myself on autopilot and said, well, this is the way my life will be. And I'll just have to accept it. It just sounds so unfair. Somebody that loves the Lord so much and served in the church and so innocent and being kicked out. Oh, but it sounded like maybe meeting your husband would have been a positive thing for you. How did you guys meet? Um, I actually worked at his office. Um, so I met him there. Um, we dated for about two years and I just found him to be a kind loving soul. He was very unassuming. He wasn't arrogant. He didn't, um, he wasn't a boastful type of person. He didn't like taking credit for things, even though he deserved it sometimes. He was just a good hearted person. And I just, I fell in love with him immediately. I, I really did. Aww. I thought this was a great, great guy. I mean, I will tell you, I have said many times because before I met him, I was on a destructive path. I, 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 I did not have any self-esteem. I saw myself just simply as some sex object that, you know, I was only good for that. Um, and so when I met him, you know, he saved my life because he, he, he loved me for who I was and showed me that I was worthy. So I've often said to him, you know, you saved my life. And he will respond back with, you made mine. And Aww. you can't get any better than that. So meeting him was a turning point for me. But I kept a secret from him for 27 years and I lived in fear that he'd always find out that I'd had this affair with a married man. And, and I know in my heart that it wouldn't have made a difference to him, but people who've been abused never forget the words, don't ever tell. And mm -hmm. I never forgot those words. And I never forgot what the consequences could be if I were to tell someone, because when my elders found out, they blamed me. And I, I couldn't bear the thought that if I were to tell him that somehow he would find fault with me. Or I wondered, would he wonder why I 
didn't feel confident enough to tell him? Would he feel betrayed that I kept a secret? Would he see me differently sexually? All those fears that I had, while unfounded, were still present in my mind. And so I never, I never could tell him. And I had to do a lot of play acting and pretending um, through our married life in the sense that the times I was having trigger factors, I had to hide them. And I know he would have been supportive, but I couldn't see that because while trauma affects you at the time of the abuse, it's lifelong. It doesn't leave you. And so I lived with that for 27 years. So did you have intimacy issues when you were together? Was that what you're talking about, the triggering? No, I, you know, I know a lot of victims do, and that's understandable. I, I really didn't um, because he was so different from my abuser. And I recognized that my abuser was emotionally violent mm. and physically, you know, he, he, he just wasn't loving in any sense of the word. I was simply used for sex mm-hmm. and I didn't have that with my husband. And so I, I could separate that a little bit. Um, but I, I think the guilt of hiding the secret had an impact on our marriage as far as my able to be intimate with him in an emotional way. You're not the first person that I've heard that the victim has hidden a secret from her husband. I passed her and her husband did not know. Mm-hmm. Children didn't know. And it was a family member that was the abuser. And mm. I kept telling her, you, you've got to tell him. Mm-hmm. You know why? It's because... And I was thinking this when I was listening to your the other shows that you were on. I'm thinking about your children and your grandchildren. Like, if right. I was abused, I would be like, how do I keep my children and grandchildren from going through what I just went through, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting thing because most people would assume that my daughter, I would have been all over it and worried at sick every time she left the house. Yeah. But I actually had the opposite um, reaction because keep in mind, I didn't see myself as an abuse victim. I saw myself as someone who participated, who willingly went into this relationship and stayed in it willingly, which is not the case when you're abused. There's the control, the manipulation, all of those things that play Mm -hmm. into keeping a victim in a relationship and they see no way out. So for me, I just assumed I got one bad apple in the whole barrel, that this didn't happen to other people and that I had an affair, but my daughter, who I knew, she would never have an affair with a married man. I just knew that. So I sent her on retreats. I sent her to church camp without fear, because again, I'm thinking, okay, this just doesn't happen to other people. And this is not something I need to be concerned about with her. However, with my granddaughters, it's totally different because now I understand what really occurred and the damage that can occur when you've been abused. And so with my granddaughters, you know, her mom and dad have talked to them uh, about good touch, bad touch. And I too have talked about it to her, but I've been a little bit more probably detailed about it. Mm-hmm. And as she gets older, you know, these men, the techniques change as you get older and if they go after teenage girls. So, mm-hmm. you know, she, hopefully I will be able to help her understand, you know, what happens when someone's grooming. I want her to understand her personal space that if you're not comfortable when someone hugs you, it's okay to That's say, right. I, I don't want you to touch me that way. Mm-hmm. Or, or or say, if they don't feel comfortable. And, and we put a lot on kids to, to, to do that. Because here we're yes. asking a child to say to an adult, no. So mm-hmm. it's okay to go to your mother or your mom and say, you know, can you tell so-and-so Uncle Jimmy or whoever it is, I don't want to be hugged. So we need to make sure our kids understand that their personal space is their space. And if they don't want someone in that space, it's okay to say no. I also think it's important to tell kids that good people can do bad things. Because as we talked about earlier, our abusers are not strangers. They're not mean people. Mm -hmm. They're usually good people. They're usually people who've given us gifts. They're people who help us. They're people who tell us how wonderful we are. So it's hard for children, even adults, to see this individual who, who on one side is a good individual who does a lot in the church, who's done all these wonderful things. And so we, we have to tell these, these kids just because they're a good person doesn't mean they can't do bad things. And so that's that's kind of the message I hope to get to my granddaughters that I didn't give to my daughter. And fortunately, she didn't have any issues with 
church or any, anybody abusing her. But I certainly did not um, guide her in the right way in that sense, because I just, like I said, I just assumed that I was the only one that this would ever have happened to. Well, I think uh, I hear a lot in the church that they don't teach sex ed because they don't want the kids to go out and have sex. <laughs> and so a lot of these kids are like ignorant as to, you know, what is healthy and what is what is not proper. Yeah, we need to teach them that our bodies are, are going to respond. They were built that way. God intended us to have feelings, you know, when we are around the opposite sex. That's normal. So mm -hmm. we need to make sure kids understand that there are barriers and there are boundaries that need to be taken. Um, but you're absolutely right. When we don't talk about it, then we figure it out on their own. And, and we, can, we can all imagine when you're leaving teenagers to their own devices to figure out things, that's probably oh, yeah. not going to lead in a good spot. Now we have, we have the internet now, which when, we, right. when you and I were younger, yes. we didn't have the internet. We didn't have cell phones. No. If you wanted a, a Playboy right. magazine, a, you had to go to the, that kind of a neighborhood to get something. Yes. You know. Yes. It was a lot more difficult. Yes, absolutely. But too many parents yeah. are embarrassed to talk to their children about sex and you know, everybody listening needs to listen. You need to find a way to talk to them about these things. And one of the techniques that I use with my daughter, just in talking about sex in general, you know, kids don't want to hear their mom and dad talk to them about this. So what I did was say, you know, I read a magazine article about this girl who did such and such, so that I put it off on something else, that's, you know, a non-entity of a person. And I'll say, you know, or have you ever heard of this and of course she got a little embarrassed but I, it opened the dialogue without me coming out and saying have you heard of oral sex it, instead I would talk to her and say you know I heard this about this this is what kids are doing blah 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 so you kind of have to find techniques and ways to sneak around it sometimes but you absolutely need to talk to them because they know it's out there and they're going to experiment um, that's just part of being a teenager yeah, my parents chickened out. They just gave me a book to read. <laughs> same, <laughs> Which, probably the same book I got. I uh, forget what it was called, Where Did I Come From or something. It was a cartoon book. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm grateful for that. And um, they just, after I finished the book, do you have any questions? Yeah, yeah. I had a lot and, of you know, uh, older people that were friends. And I, I would actually go to my older, you know, senior citizen friends and ask them questions rather than ask my parents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's more comfortable that way for sure. That's, you know, like I said, it's not the topic, but we like to talk to it with our kids and our kids don't want to hear it, but being uncomfortable is not an excuse not to, to do that. And, you know, in school you get the basics of the mechanics of it, but then that ends, that's all you get there as well. And that's not as helpful either. We had this, the sixth grade menstrual yeah. cycle, you know, health right. class. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They separate the girls and the boys. Yeah. <laughs> we were all really embarrassed. and Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. Great information. Yeah. So let's uh, yeah. circle around back to, okay, you've, you've been hiding this secret forever mm -hmm. and nobody knows about your past. And then one day you got triggered. So what Big happened today? Well, that's the first chapter of my book. And that is one day I was driving to a golf tournament in Tennessee. We live in Cincinnati. I was driving. My daughter was in college. She was playing in a golf tournament. I was driving down there and I was about halfway when I saw an exit sign for the town of Kingsport, Tennessee. And that is the town to which my abuser was sent after he left our church. And it just sent me over the edge. I, mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I'm thinking I'm in the town where he lives. Am I close to his house? Am I close to the church where he's now a minister? I, I mean, even though it had been 27 years, I thought he was probably still there. I didn't know. But that's what my mind was telling me. I, all of a sudden, I felt his presence in the car. I, I could smell him. I could hear him. Oh. I was. It was unbelievable to me what was happening to me. I didn't even know what was happening. I pulled to the side of the road. Oh, good. <laughs> and I sobbed. Yeah. I sobbed for about 20 minutes. And I, I was just trying to figure out what was happening because anytime I had trigger factors before I could manage them, I could control them. I kind of let them happen. And then I push them back down. Mm -hmm. This one wasn't going back down. And I, I was a mess. I was just an absolute mess. I was able to get through the weekend 
I drove back home and all I could think about was what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I wanted to stop thinking about him and I couldn't. I spent the next two weeks um, really in anxiety. I, my husband would leave for work and I would just walk around the house wringing my hands, trying to figure out why I was feeling the way I was feeling. What was I going to do with these feelings? Till at one point I finally decided I was going to tell my best friend and I was absolutely petrified to tell her because for the first time in 27 years, mm -hmm. I was going to utter the words, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. And I, I remember thinking, he's going to find out and I'm going to get in trouble. I, I just, I was 49 years old and I'm still afraid of this man. But I did tell her. Um, it was, it took me a long time to, to get the words out, but I did. She was very supportive. She was very kind. She was patient as she waited for me to tell her. Um and so that started my journey of healing just by telling that first person. I then told two or three other of my close friends. So the four of us spent many days and many hours on the screened in porch of one of my friends, just letting me talk mm -hmm. and being able to express what had happened to me. Um, I wasn't ready to tell all of the story. I mean, there's parts in the book that I, I won't go into here because they're pretty mm -hmm. embarrassing and some sure. things that I did. So I, I wasn't ready to tell them everything, but I told them enough that it helped me start to release what had been done to me. And so that was the first thing that I did, I think. And then the next thing I did, which was so valuable, and I encourage victims to do it as well, I just read everything I could on clergy abuse or sexual abuse in itself. So I began to learn the terms of grooming, manipulation, gaslighting, and then I could see mm -hmm. how he methodically used each one of those things on me to get me to do the things he got me to do and to stay in that relationship for those five years. And that was huge for me. So it was for the first time as I began reading, I understood that I had been abused. Now. It still took me a while to admit that I really was sexually abused because I didn't want that label. I didn't want to be an abuse victim. And there was a part of me, we all want to be loved. And so there was still a part of me that I wanted to think that there was some part of him that cared about me, that this wasn't just purely about sex and that he wasn't just using me for his, for his own gratification. And I had to get past that. I had to finally come to terms with no. This man didn't do the, no one who loves you would do the things he did and, and ask the things he did of me. So that took me a while um, to finally admit, okay, this was an abusive relationship. So I, I told someone, educated myself, and then I had to learn to forgive myself. I had yes. to let, I had to let go of the guilt and shame because any guilt and shame belongs squarely on him. This was a man that I should have been able to trust. It was in a place that should have been the safest place on earth for me. And he took advantage of a vulnerable teenager who had, you know, I didn't have a major crisis in my life, but he knew my home life was an upheaval at times. He knew that I didn't see my dad very much. So he used that to, to, against me. And I had to forgive myself for being who I was at the time and being able to respond the way I did for the, for the coping skills I had at the time. Sure, you can look back and I think, why didn't I say this? Why didn't I do that? But I couldn't because of, of, the, of the relationship he had created between us. Mm -hmm. I, I had lost all power. He was in complete control of this relationship. So I, I had to forgive myself. And that wasn't easy either. And then, and I don't know that this is, something all victims should do, but I just felt this need that I needed to confront him. I just felt like I couldn't move past this unless I was able to face him. Now, I had no contact with him for 27 years. I didn't even know if he was still alive, but I hired a private investigator and he wow. found him ministering in a church in Alabama. And so I had my investigator contact him and we set up a time and a meeting that we would meet. And I took my husband, I took my friend who was a counselor, and another friend who was at the church at the time. Um, you told your husband at this point? I'm sorry. Yes, that's correct. I, it was probably three months after I told my friends um, that I said to him, I would like to meet him in his office and talk to him about something. And I was terrified. 
I don't know how else to say it. I just was so afraid, not that I needed to be, but I was. And I probably sat there for almost, I would say 40 minutes and just cried. I was wow. able to finally get out. I'm okay. The kids are okay. And then I started crying again. He couldn't have been any more supportive, more loving. I remember mm. looking at his face and I said I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. And he didn't, his expression didn't change. And then I said I was their babysitter. And his face just dropped. And oh. for the first time, I could see the pain I was feeling was reflected in his face. It, it was, I almost wanted to hug him to say, I'm sorry, because I could see how much it hurt him to know that this had been done to me, especially as a baby. I mean, he, the picture became complete for him once I said that. Um, and so he was very supportive. Um, I think he was worried about me confronting this man uh, for a couple of reasons. But one, I think he was worried that I would be disappointed in his reaction and that I would be expecting too much of this person to understand what he did to me and show any kind of remorse um, and that I, it would hurt me even more. And one of my fears was that, you know, I was afraid he wouldn't meet me. I, I was afraid that he was going to say, no, I, I'm not going to meet with you. And my husband said, oh, he's going to meet with you all right. Because if he doesn't meet with you, you just tell him, we'll call the church secretary. We'll call every elder. We're going to, he's, somebody's going to hear your story if he doesn't want to hear it. So he did agree to meet with me. Um, I went down to Alabama and the meeting took place. And I said the things that I wanted to say to him. I wanted him to get what he did to me. Um, but he didn't. He, he never could understand the damage. It, it was almost as if, okay, I shouldn't have done it. And I'm sorry I did it. Okay, now what do you want? Um, it was- yeah, Get away, just, you bothered me. Yes. And his greatest fear, as most narcissists, and I believe he was uh, narcissistic, but his greatest fear was that I was going to demand that he be removed from the ministry. I mean, that's what he was most concerned about, how this was going to impact him. Well. And- yeah. I, he should have been out of the ministry. Um, so I went to his boss. Um, I was told, listen, something happened 27 years ago. He, we think he's safe. We're not worried. In spite of the fact that during the meeting, he had admitted that there had been multiple occurrences of sexual misconduct throughout his ministry. Not all teenagers. Some were, most were probably women. Um, and then he said he had gone to therapy because he had been identified as a sexual addict. And I kept thinking, who, what, what uh -huh. world, what world does this make sense that a man who has been identified by a psychologist as a sex addict belongs in the ministry? Nope. But here was this church. So I sent a letter to his 11 elders thinking, okay, somebody in this eldership is going to see this is something's wrong here. Not one responded, totally ignored me. 11 elders totally ignored me. Wow. No so way. then um, I decided to go to his denominational leaders, which were in Indianapolis. And there again, while they were sympathetic to my story and apologized that it happened, they said, we're an independent church. Our churches hire and fire their own ministers. We have no control. And if they choose to keep this man, we can do nothing about it. And so what? I was shut down and basically I, didn't, I had no place else to go. I had pretty much done everything I had, could do. And it wasn't my place to demand that he be removed. I expected the church to be the church. To do the I right was, thing. Exactly. Yeah. I, I assumed so naively that once they heard my story and once they understood the background of this man, surely someone would say, this isn't right. But again, keep in mind, he's very charismatic. He, he brings in people, he brings in money. And to be fair, and probably I'm being a little too gracious, these men are very good at manipulating not only the victim, but the congregation as well. They're very good at getting control of the congregation so that they find themselves following this man, no matter what he would do. And that's yeah. basically what happened. Um, there was going to be, I got a four page letter from his boss telling me that, you know, I'm going to ruin this church if I continue on this path and that I'm going to feel all this guilt because I'm going to be responsible for the damage that I will do to people's 
spiritual lives. I mean, it, it was an incredible, I put the letter in the book um, I, I, because it is so incredibly hard to believe that someone would write that to a victim of, of abuse. Just so that was what year did that happen? 2004. Well, we did have the internet. Oh, yes. And this was after the Catholic um, church had had their uh, exposure of sexual abuse within their church. So yes, this was, it was out there for sure. This wasn't something that you would think, oh, I, I can't believe this happened. And, and again, he admitted to these past instances. I mean, this wasn't someone who was saying, oh, I don't know what she's talking about, or, oh, this is the only time it ever happened. Um, he had been in therapy because he was a sexual addict. So, um, so he was, wasn't registered as a sex offender? I guess not. And, and in my case, uh, at the time of the abuse, the age of consent was 16. So I had no legal recourse because of, I was legally age of consent. Now that has been changed in Ohio. It's oh, now 18. Good. It's now 18. But many states, it's still 16. There are several states where the age of consent is 16. Now the interesting about that is his, his contact, sexual contact with me was not considered a crime. However, if he had been my high school teacher, it would have been a crime. What? So pastors, <laughs> I know, does not make sense. It does not um, make a lick of sense. No, it does not. Um, so it, they don't consider him a teacher. They don't, they don't, they consider it an affair, a, a mutual relationship. If he'd been my teacher, that's a different story. Um, so yeah, I had no legal recourse um, and that was frustrating, um, but I, can't, I couldn't change that. So it was what it was. I just had to accept that. He, yes, he belonged in jail. There's yes. no doubt and should be registered as a sex offender. But I'm not so sure that even if he's registered as a sex offender, these people in Alabama and wherever he is now would even take that as a, as a, as a concern. Well, you know that the millennials now, they'll just, they just post stuff on Facebook and Twitter and call the, the evening news and they have, you know, yes. news people at their doorstep right. ready to mm -hmm. track this guy's name through the mud. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> you didn't choose to do that, I guess. No, I, I, you know, I, I'm very careful about naming him in the sense that um, part of my story is that I reconnected with his wife. Um, she actually divorced him after they moved uh, because, okay. again, he committed <laughs> sexual misconduct. She was 20, I think, at the time, so it wasn't a minor. But th that's beside the point. This is a man in a position that... Mm -hmm a professional who does not cross boundaries like that. So to no one's surprise, he, he committed sexual misconduct the third time. So she divorced him. And part of, you know, I guess letting go of some of the guilt that I felt, I, I wanted to connect with her to at least tell her, not that I was responsible for what happened, but how very sorry I was for her pain and suffering as well, because she was part of the youth group. I mean, she was there at the church all the time. We sang in the choir together. So it was like, I had a relationship with her oh, wow. to some extent. And of course, when, you know, we were found, when he was found out by the elders, you know, she was upset and she, of course, you know, didn't want to have anything to do with me, which is understandable. So I, I actually think I also wanted to give her the opportunity to say whatever she felt she needed to say to me if she wanted to. I mean, I didn't know what she was going to say or react. I thought maybe she'd hang up on me. I didn't know. Um, so I called her one day. Um, my investigator found her phone number and gave it to me. And she couldn't have been any more gracious. I, she never blamed me. She understood as, she, as the years went on what this really was, just like mm -hmm. I did. Um, She's remarried. She has a wonderful husband now. Um, and so I visited her a, a several times. We keep in contact. And so part of my not wanting to expose him too much is that it would be hurtful to her. And he does have children. Now, I know that, well, whatever consequences are as a result of this are all on him. But I don't feel the need to add to that. Um, that's not my purpose in speaking out. And so... Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I've gone to his church leaders. I've done everything I can to get him removed from the ministry. Um, and I, nothing, it's just, he's, he's still, I don't know that he's still a pastor, but he still remains in good standing within that denomination to this day. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we have to just let God dish out the justice. It may not be in our timeline. It, 
may not be the way that we think it should happen, but right. he's not going to get away with this. No. And again, I did my part. So yes. my conscience is clear and I, I'm able to say I did what I could do. And whether or not they removed him, I certainly hope that I maybe put some doubt in some of their minds and maybe questioned their motives in keeping this man. I don't know, but um, I feel I did what I could do and I feel good about that. I feel good about that. Absolutely. You should. And, you know, what I'm really interested in is, you know, you're trying to keep this stuff from happening to other people. So, I mean, what can we do to prevent some of this stuff? Well, it's difficult again, because these men are among us as wolves in sheep's clothing. And so they're difficult to spot, but a, a couple things. I think the first thing I would tell people is if something doesn't seem right, you keep your antenna up. Don't just ignore it or just don't think, oh, well, that can't be true because he's the pastor. Mm-hmm. If it's behavior that you wouldn't accept in someone else, or it's something that you would question in someone else, then question it in the pastor or the choir director, whoever it is. Don't be blinded by the person, the persona that they're presenting to you. So that's the first thing I would say is keep your antenna up. The other thing is we, and we're churches I think are doing better about this, but you've got to have policies in place that say, no, you're not taking a 16 year old girl on your hospital visit with you. That's, yes. that's, that's not normal. That's not right. What is she doing going on a hospital visit with you in a car? Um, and of course now we have the texting and there should be absolutely no texting between a pastor, a youth minister, in anyone in the congregation. And that includes, nope. don't forget the meeting for the church luncheon. Nope. There should be no texting because you it's, it's too hidden and it's too easily moved to the next step. And that's how it starts. You know, all of, all of the abuse when it's someone you know, it always starts with small things and subtle things. It innocent doesn't, things. Innocent things yeah. that, that are innocent. But so that's why, you know, so no texting. Um, yeah. So put in the policy, those places of, you know, when you take a 10-year-old child to the bathroom, you make sure there's another adult with you. Absolutely. That's for your safety as well as for the child's safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think we need to be aware. And then I would also say, watch for the vulnerable in your among your church or your group. Watch for the kid that's got issues at home and, and is looking for a father figure be aware that they're going to be more susceptible to someone who's a predator and pay attention to their cues and kind of keep on touch with them as well in a sense of asking questions and how they're doing and be the kind of a person that they might feel comfortable coming to if something were to happen to them because they're the ones that are going to be most vulnerable um, to a predator. So that's kind of, you know, an overview of what maybe a help to try and stop and prevent some of this. Um, I like lots of video cameras. They're cheap now. You can put a camera, you can hide cameras all over the church facility. And And I think too, talking to this about this issue to the congregation before anything happens, you know, maybe having a person in your congregation who is the go-to person on this topic, who who's researched Mm -hmm. what all these grooming and manipulation is so that they are even more equipped to to notice the signs. So you have a person who's kind of in charge of that topic and then address it to the congregation once a year and say, here's our policy. And, and here's what we expect of our pastors. And here's what we would hope you would do if you notice something. So it, it just brings it out so that people feel like if there is something that they know is going on or something's wrong, they feel comfortable going to someone about it. Those are all really great tips for leaders and um, church members. What if I'm listening and I'm being subjected to some of this stuff, what should I do? Well, what you need to do and what is the hardest thing to do is to tell someone. And it's hard to do because when you're in an abusive relationship, you are being controlled by your abuser and the narrative is what he is directing. And so he's going to tell you, look, you can tell anybody you want, they're not going to believe you. And he tells you that over and over again. He's also going to tell you that you're going to be in trouble if you tell anyone. And then there's that problem of you sort of care about this person. Here's someone that has been helping you, who's been your mentor, and you don't want to get him in trouble. So 
with all those dynamics involved, it's very difficult for victims to come forward. But I am telling you, you don't wanna wait the 27 years that I did no. and live with this guilt and the shame and the angst and the anxiety. It's, 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 first of all, it's not worth it. And you're not doing anyone any favors, especially yourself, because there is help out there, but they can only help you if you're able to be able to tell someone. And believe me, I understand how difficult that is. It's not easy, mm-hmm. but I, I, I would hope that by hearing my story and others that you will understand that there is help out there and you need to tell someone because it won't end until you tell someone. And if you need to, you go to someone that you trust. And if you need to, you go outside the church. You tell yes. someone you know is going to listen to you. Hey, you know, I tell my listeners, you can call me anytime. Mm-hmm. You can email me, and I'm sure you'd say the same thing. Exactly. Reach out to Sandy if mm-hmm. you need somebody to talk to, mm-hmm. or you don't know what, what what is the next step I need to take here. Right. Isn't that scary? To make it is. It's very step. scary. Very scary. Absolutely. So then there's the rest of us. Um, those that have not experienced clergy abuse, maybe we're members in the church, maybe we're friends or family. What are some helpful things for us to do to support a victim? Helpful things to say. Or maybe maybe there's things we, we shouldn't say. You well, know? that's a, yes. Um, well, first I would say, anytime you're aware of a victim of clergy abuse or anybody who's been abused, whether it's clergy or not, reiterate to that victim that it was not their fault and that there was nothing they could have done, should have done that would have prevented this. And by doing that, you are telling that person they're free to speak to you. Um, and, And victims need to hear it over and over again because we do blame ourselves. Children as young as five, will blame themselves because they allowed someone to touch them because mommy said not to. And that guilt and that shame that victims carry, it's difficult to let go of it. So to hear someone say to us, it's not your fault is so freeing. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is let them know that you will listen to them without judging them and you will hear their story without being shocked that you're able to say, tell me everything you need to tell me or tell me as little as you want to tell me. Give them a comfort place to go to talk. And then I would say, and this is difficult for people who have spiritual lives or who are part of the church, be very much aware that things such as prayer and Bible reading and scripture can be very triggering for those who've been abused in the church. Mm -hmm. So things that you would find comforting like prayer, can be a very major trigger factor for victims. And so instead of saying to a victim, I'll pray for you, or can I pray with you? The best thing you could say would be to to phrase it in such a way as to say, I understand because of what you've been through, prayer can be difficult. And so I would like to pray for you, but I would completely understand if you don't want to pray or you don't even want me to pray for you. And so you've opened up the door to say to this person, wow, I don't have to feel guilty because I can't pray. You know, when we've grown up in the church and we've been told how wonderful church and prayer and all those things are, we still carry that guilt too, because we're no longer connected to God. So to have a a person on the outside recognize that these can be trigger factors is again, a gift. It's a gift. So those things I think would be the most helpful when dealing with a person of clergy abuse and give them time. Don't push forgiveness. Don't push trying to get them back into church because some victims will never be able to go back to church. If you let them find their own pace of time and you do it without judging them. And I know that's kind of hard sometimes for Christians and people in the church because we love the church and we find it to be such a wonderful place. And we want this person back in the church. Yes. But it, it may not be the best place at that point for that victim. Such valuable advice. I, that is awesome. And again, back to like when you're talking about this sex education, open up the dialogue, you yeah. know, bring it up, bring it up before they bring it up. You know, again, it, you know, I read in the newspaper that this girl was molested by, you know, a, a gym teacher, you know, you know that that, ha- I know that happens. So, you know, and then let them know that if, if it's, so, you, you know, it's, it is, 
like you said, allowing that comfort to be able to talk to someone. I think for me, it was important to give my side of the story. Um, no one had a clue that he was emotionally and verbally and physically abusive to me. They saw this as a little love affair and that we had this, you know, magic little love affair. You know, evil no one, temptress. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so I wanted them to know the full story. That was important for my healing too. Um, and they did that. And, you know, they welcomed me back to the church. Um, I went back, I've been back a couple times for um, a youth group reunion that we had. So, and that was difficult. But again, I thought that was necessary for me to move forward. I had to let go of my past. I had to figure out not to forget it, but how was I going to incorporate it in my life going forward and what mm -hmm. that would look like. Wow, this has been such an awesome time. Learned so much today. Um, you have this really great book that I'm waiting in the mail for if the postmaster will ever get it to me. Let me pray on you, P-R-E-Y. Um, mm -hmm. Tell them how they can get a copy of your book and how the listeners connect with you. Uh, my book is on Amazon. They can go to my website, which is a little long, but it's my name. It's www.sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-M. And I also have a Facebook page as well uh, under Sandy Phillips Kirkham author. Um, but my website, um, and there's a lot of valuable information there that I think victims mm -hmm. would find helpful. So I encourage victims or anyone who really just wants to understand from a vic vic victim's perspective, because that's the, the value in telling our story. Wow. Amen to that. Well, this has been awesome. i so appreciate you coming onto the show and I will let you know when I get the book and have read it and I'll, I'll put a review up there on Amazon uh, with your book and absolutely keep in touch. I will. I will do that. You've been an, a delightful host and I've certainly enjoyed my time here with me. And um, I do hope that it's been a help to some victims if they're listening, because, you know, uh, like I said, so many times I said, I wish I'd heard someone's story when this was being done to me, because then maybe I would have understood and could have had the courage at that time to come forward. Thank you so much. God Thank bless you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.